you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. Hello, everyone. Before we get started today, I just want to send my thanks out to our friend and listener, Lionel, who taught me this week that no website is ever truly gone from this world. In our last podcast, I mentioned how the website OakIslandLot5.com had been taken down since we first started talking about it and mentioning it a couple weeks back. Well, thankfully, once again, the listeners are much smarter than the host here, and Lionel managed to access the information we needed from that website and sent it along to us. Uh, with a photo of a coin with a square hole found a few years back by the lo- by the owner of Lot 5 on his property. I posted that photo Lionel sent on our Facebook and Twitter pages, so we have a record of it to reference in the future. And you guys can all have a look at it for yourself if you haven't seen it before and see how this artifact unearthed years ago on Oak Island compares pretty closely with the one Gary Drayton found back in Episode 1 of this season. Also, a quick hello to our friend and listener, Jen, who I actually met years ago at the wedding of a mutual friend of ours. Uh, She stumbled onto this podcast recently and reached out to me just to say hi. It is a small world, Jen. Uh, Thank you for listening. And don't forget, please share the podcast with any of your fellow Oak Island fans here. Uh, Now, before we review this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island, we do have some emails and some social media messages to talk about and to answer. So let's get to that. The first comes from Stefan. He writes... I stumbled upon another pirate called Olivier Lavasseur, and under the wiki page, it mentions that someone looking for his treasure says it was underground and a dam has to be built as the treasure was protected by the tide and had to be started in the north. It made me think of Oak Island. Although Olivier Lavasseur treasure is thought to be in Madagascar, he did raid in the Caribbean and might have known of these locations. It probably has nothing to do with Oak Island itself, but thought it was an interesting coincidence. Well, Stefan, you are absolutely correct. It really has nothing much to do with Oak Island. Um, However, maybe it does in just this one small regard. Historians, especially historians of piracy, insist that an academics, which is probably a a better way of putting it, insists the very idea that pirates ever buried their treasure is nothing but fiction. That it just isn't something pirates ever really did, and it's just lore that comes from books and Hollywood and all that kind of stuff. However, there are scores of treasure hunters throughout the ages and around the world who would respectfully disagree with that conclusion. And Olivier Levasseur is one example that these treasure hunters most often point to. Plus, this gives me a great chance to talk about one of my very favorite subjects, pirates. Particularly this pirate. Anyway, oh, Stefan, you opened a can of worms here, my friend. I hate to tell you, but we're going to go on a non-Oak Island tangent here. Hey, anyone who's a fan of the television show The Grand Tour that's on Amazon Prime, it's the one made by the old host of the BBC show Top Gear. Um, one of those hosts is a guy named James May. Now, um, anybody who's watched this show recently knows they just put out a brand new um big two-hour special, and anyone who watched that will know all about Olivier Levasseur, who had the incredibly piratey nickname of Labousse, which is French for the buzzard. <laughs> Levasseur was a well-educated former French naval officer who, like many a pirate, 
started as a legally sanctioned privateer and soon turned to the very much more lucrative business of piracy. He also had a bad eye and wore an eye patch over it as a result, so it's very possible that the buzzard is actually the source behind that particular pirate cliche. Anyway, in the 1720s, he had become quite successful looting along the east coast of Africa, around Mozambique and Madagascar. In 1721, or somewhere around 1721, I might have the date a little, little bit off, Lavasor, along with his partner, an Englishman named John Taylor, another pirate, pulled off what could be the greatest pirate capture of all time. When they sacked the Portuguese galleon called Nossa Senhora do Cabo, which in English is Our Lady of the Cape, the galleon was stuffed with treasure, with gold, diamonds, pearls, and probably most famously, an incredible religious artifact called the Flaming Cross of Goa, which was a giant cross. Well, I don't know how big it was, but it was a big cross made of solid gold and adorned with diamonds, emeralds, and other precious stones. It was a treasure worth totaling probably something like $200 million in today's money. So here's where James May picked up the story in the Grand Tour, right? And where things start to take a very sort of Oak Islandy flavor. Obviously, after taking such an incredible loot, the buzzard and his compadres became a wanted man. And eventually, he was captured on Madagascar. And around 1730, he was hung for his crimes in the town of San Denis on the island of Reunion, which is a small, beautiful little French island in the Indian Ocean, about 100 miles east of Madagascar. According to the legend, and it is truly a great pirate legend, folks, as Lavasur was standing on the, before the scaffold, <laughs> he took a necklace from around his neck and he flung it into the crowd, proclaiming, Find my treasure, ye who may understand it, assumingly in French. The necklace contained a cryptogram. It was 17 lines of a coded message, which apparently would lead whoever could translate this message to his incredible treasure which is assumed to include the priceless flaming cross of Goa. Now, people have been trying to crack that code ever since with no success, and one you mentioned is just another one of those people. If you watch the Grand Tour, you'll see what people believe the cryptogram looked like, and even watch James May try his hand at cracking this code and finding the treasure. Spoiler alert, they don't find it. Anyway, and you are also correct, Stefan. Uh, the buzzard did spend some of his early pirating career in the Caribbean, and also off the coast of South Africa, or South America, I'm sorry, before heading to Africa. So like I said, even though Olivier Levasseur is certainly not a suspect in the Oak Island mystery, because we have no reason to believe he went that far north, it is an example of someone who maybe, in fact, did hide or bury their treasure and also left behind a coded message to those who were trying to find it. Something like maybe a... Uh, coded cipher stuffed in the back of a book along with a map or, or or maybe some coded symbols carved into a stone that's buried on top of your treasure. Well, you get what I mean, right? Anyway, thank you, Stefan, for the message and for giving me a chance to talk more about the buzzard, one of my favorites. Phil on Twitter writes, the new swamp slipway aren't those the boards that Fred Nolan is holding up in those old pictures where he was surveying the swamp? What convinced him there was a Spanish ship sunk? Phil, I don't think so. Um, Fred Nolan did pull out some pieces of wood. I don't think this is the same area that you see those, and I don't think this is the same one. He pulled out a long board. It looked like a deck plank of some kind out of the swamp, and also smaller pieces of what we would call kind of notched wood, which he concluded 
was from the scupper of a ship. Scuppers are like the open slots around the side of the deck on the, you know, where the deck meets the railing, uh, which allows water to run off the deck and back into the ocean. Personally, I'm leaning towards what Fred found to be very different from what we saw in the swamp at the end of episode eight. But since we haven't really uncovered any of that wood yet, it's impossible to say right now with any level of certainty that's true. Perhaps we'll be able to better compare it after we see more work done on this new find. Strangely, though, we didn't see any of that in this week's episode, but I'll get to that in a minute. Phil, you asked, uh, the quote was, what convinced him there was a Spanish ship sunk? Saying Spanish Spanish ship is obviously not easy. I don't know if you knew that, but... <laughs> well, I assume it was the aforementioned wood he found and the risk of sounding well, maybe a bit negative towards Fred, which I am occasionally accused of, was also what I would call a somewhat hopeful conclusion for what he found, which Fred was often prone to do. Listen, so many treasure hunters throughout the ages and around the world share that very same trait. If they were not at least somewhat convinced something was there, despite <laughs> you know better evidence, they, they wouldn't be looking into it, what they're looking for in the first place, right? I mean, Fred, like so many others, was convinced he was really onto something here. It was what kept him in the search for decades. But truth be told, and I, I think this might also be true for all treasure hunters, that kind of feeling could sometimes cloud their judgment, and it would often lead to, you know, conclusions being drawn that might have been a bit, oh, I don't know, hopefully exaggerated, if that's a good phrase. Think of the quote-unquote shaft entrance he labeled on the map. We have seen so much of that sh map, and it's saying the shaft or throughout the early part of this season. But when you get right down to it, it's obvious that Fred never dug on this feature and never really found out what it was, if it was indeed a shaft. But that didn't stop him from being convinced when he first saw it that that's what it could be. Make sense? Anyway, let's go to Mike who writes, Happy New Year, love the podcast. So listening to the intro part of your podcast in episodes 7 and 8, responding to Peter's email with a great theory about the artwork and scrolls being buried in a vault in a wet environment underground. Well, I think it was possible. What if the, the pine tar kiln on lot 15 was used to render the walls and ceiling of the vault waterproof? Sealing the vault with the tar would prevent water from coming in and causing damage to the treasure. Could it be possible? At this point, anything can. Keep up the good work. Well, Mike, I have to ask my man, have you been writing for Robert Clotworthy, the narrator here? <laughs> I mean, you sound like it, right? Could it be? Uh, sure, I suppose pine tar could, in some respect, have been used to help seal some sort of underground treasure vault, if that's what you're looking for, as well as it could be used for many other things, I assume. But until I see some evidence that such a thing actually happened, I'm just going to go through life assuming that a pine tar kiln found along the coast was used for what every other pine tar kiln found along the coast was built for, uh, and that is for maritime use, and, and I'm not going to assume anything more than that. I'm not saying you're wrong, Mike. I'm just saying there needs to be evidence first, because at this point we have none, so saying such a thing is just wild speculation. Anyway, thank you so much for uh, reaching out, Mike. Let's go to Sherry, who says, this is in regard to the Chinese coin found. I remember a documentary on the possibility that the Chinese had a settlement somewhere in Nova Scotia, dating somewhere around the 15th century. Something about a wall and a road. I have not heard much about this theory since then, but this came to mind when they found the Chinese coin. Yes, I realize we don't know how the coin ended up on Oak Island, but just a thought I'd throw it in the mix. Thank you for the podcast, Sherry. Well, Sherry, yes, such a theory does exist, I guess is the way to put it. Uh, 
you can check out something called the 1412 Foundation for just kind of a taste of that. Uh, and I do also have a sort of a vague memory of a documentary as well. It kind of remind me of the Al Capone vault thing. I don't think the documentary found what it said it was looking for, but my memory on that is <laughs> sketchy to say the least. Uh, listen, here's the thing. I really just don't want to spend a lot of time on this Chinese in Nova Scotia theory, and let me explain why. For one, despite what the experts have said on the show recently, I am not yet completely convinced that this quote-unquote Chinese coin Gary Drayton found is indeed a genuine Chinese cash coin. It probably is, but I'm just not totally there yet. Also, and more importantly, and I've said this before, but it's really worth repeating, finding this coin is by no means any indication or any proof that ancient Chinese explorers came to Oak Island. Also, the finding of the coin just doesn't really inform the treasure hunt much at all when you think about it. Now, maybe I'll be proven wrong. Maybe the Chinese built the money pit. Who knows? But right now, I just don't see anything linking this particular find to the money pit, or for that matter, to any other part of the mystery. Thank you, Sherry. This is obviously a developing story, so let's see where it goes from here. Maybe we can come back to this later in the season. Remind me if, uh, if, if that does happen. Thank you so much for reaching out. And finally, our friend Peter, who really never fails to get us thinking on this podcast, wrote a rather simple question, uh, which is very pertinent to the current episodes of The Curse of Oak Island. He writes, Are we sure of the age of Xena Halpern's map? Are they accepting the year written on it? Or did they carbon date some of the ink and paper? Peter, let me just be honest with you on the issue we are both going to come across this season as we look at this map. I've hinted as to my feelings toward the genuineness of this map and the La Formulae as well. But I'll be honest, Rick's attachment to Xena kind of pulls at the heartstrings a little bit, even for just a viewer like me. And also, I have a respect for the woman who spent a lot of time looking into this. Um, and all those things keep me from going too far into what I really leaning towards, especially since I don't really have any proof. Um, I just kind of feel like my research is taking me somewhere. L let me say it like this. No, I don't believe the map has ever been dated scientifically, not as far as I know. And it gets down to what I said before about Fred Nolan's hopeful treasure hunting nature, right? People who are accepting the year written on it are often doing so because that's what they want the year to be. It affirms a belief they held before really ever seeing the map sometimes. And I, and I think that might be what's happening here to some degree with the map. All right. Maybe it's easier for me to just stop beating around the bush here. Yes, I think the map is a fake. I don't want to go through all the reasons why I think it's a fake, but that's what my research is telling me now. Let me also say this. I do not believe that Zena Halpern fabricated this map. And I don't believe she willingly perpetrated this falsehood or even knew herself that the map was indeed a fake. In fact, it seems she was likely as much a victim of this falsehood as everyone else here. And that's another reason why I don't really want to attack all this and all the work based on the map too aggressively. I mean, I, I think it was last week when I listened back to the podcast before I posted it that... I sat there for, for a few minutes thinking about whether I really wanted to use the word fool's errand, which I used to describe it. I um, wasn't really sure I was comfortable with that because I don't think Zena Halpern was a fool. Um, I just think, and I don't think any of them else are, as, are, are too, but that's where I am on this. And, and let me say this, I can be convinced otherwise. So Peter, that's kind of a very long way of saying your suggestion of dating the map is 
exactly what I think the team needs to be doing now before all of this other stuff, before following any of these theories about where the map might be pointing towards, us towards. I've seen enough evidence to put the map's authenticity in question, and the team knows that as well. So what they should be doing here, if they really think this map is genuine or could be genuine, is to prove that fact first. Does that make sense? Before we follow this map, invest any time or any more money into following theories based upon this map, can we at least first be sure the thing is real? Anyway, Peter, thank you again. Don't forget, if you would like to send an email to me or for us to discuss here on a future podcast, just send it along to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. And you can also send me a direct message on Facebook. Just search Diggin' Oak Island and you can follow our page there. Okay, so it's time to discuss Season 8, Episode 9 of The Curse of Oak Island called Rocks, Paper, Serpents. No complaining, Dave. No complaining. Let me start quickly with the money pit area here. As I mentioned the last couple of weeks, we've had these sort of checking in scenes over at the money pit, meaning there's not much really done or not a whole lot really learned for us on, on, on camera here. But it's almost like the producers are just want us all to know that something is happening over there and... Let's not forget about the money pit, and they haven't forgotten about it either. What we can say is they are, at least for the moment, it seems, no longer looking for Aaron Helton's supposed corridor leading to the treasure based on the aforementioned Zena Halper map. But instead, they're back to looking for possible vault at the bottom of the money pit and also for evidence of many underground movement that could have moved anything down there around. Let me say this before we move on. I like what they're doing here. This project makes sense to me. I don't know if I've mentioned this, but it really does, especially when we remember what the original goal was stated for here at the Money Pit at the beginning of the season, and that was to gather data for a possible big dig. Now, I'm no expert, but the idea of essentially probing at depth and getting a real big picture of the area makes a lot of sense to me before investing all the kind of time and money that a big dig would take. All right, that's enough for the money pit. Wasn't much there, like I said. Let's head over to the swamp. The episode opens with Rick Lagina driving his truck along with uh, the swamp doctor, Ian Spooner of Acadia University, riding shotgun in the passenger seat. Uh, the team's been draining the swamp, and now they're going to be digging on an anomaly that Spooner thinks is sort of a flat stone area in the southeast corner of the swamp. Spooner says he's never seen, quote, a feature like this under 12 inches of mud, end quote. He also says the archaeologists are excited about what they're seeing, and, uh, and he uh, then adds, quote, when archaeologists get excited, I do too. <laughs> uh, now, right off the bat, uh, the thing I find weird is that they're not talking about the wood structure that they made such a big deal about in last week's episode, the end of last week. And they're not going to talk about it for this entire episode. Man, that seems like a really weird choice to me by the editors, if that's what it is. The end of the last episode revealed stacked, possibly hand-cut wood, which we talked about a bit in the email section. Wood with maybe iron fasteners in it. And they're all located in the southeast corner of the swamp over by uh, the road there. It was, and I admitted this last time, a fascinating find. Yet, we move on to the next episode, and we're just virtually ignoring it. Seems, it has me a bit worried. I'll tell you about that. It has me a bit worried about what that might mean, that we're just sort of punting this for an entire episode. Anyway, I digress. We'll worry about that later. Billy is at the wheel of the excavator, Billy Gerhardt, and he begins scraping off the mud uh, bit by bit to try and reveal this stone feature. 
At the same time, Gary Drayton is over metal detecting at the spoils pile, basically a giant mud pile, and he immediately finds a piece of old pottery and a little chunk of coal. There is a lot of talk about what the pottery might mean. Let me just say this. Pottery means people lived on Oak Island. Old pottery means people lived on Oak Island a long time ago. That's all. Without dating it, we can draw no other conclusion. Gary finds a weird piece, possibly a jewelry piece, uh, which was this sort of odd-looking layered thing. I'll put a screenshot of it on the uh, social media pages so you can have a better look at what it is. I have no idea what it is, honestly. Working then stops for the day as the sort of wetness of the mud in this area starts to become a real issue for the digging. They're not able to really move much around. So the team decides to give the whole area just another day to dry out some more before continuing. Uh, seems like the right thing to do here because <laughs> you just never know with these areas. When we return to the work later in the episode, Spooner and the team seem to have uncovered quite a bit more of this swamp area. And the swamp doctor says the feature looks like piled up stones which go up on an angle. I assume, I think he means, I think from the way he's talking about it, it goes up on a sort of an inland trajectory, sort of heading up into the uh, the island, the center of the island. Spooner says it looks like a piled th- up three layers thick. And Rick Lagina mentions uh, that it looks like the paved stone structure that they found in the swamp, but maybe even a bit flatter. Then Billy says this really cool thing. He says the paved area had some really big boulders that looked as though people had built around these big boulders, but that this area appears, and this is his phrase, 100% built. Now, without belly aching too much, and am I the only one who wondered why this was the first time we were ever hearing someone say that perhaps the paved structure was not 100% built? It would have been a good piece of evidence to have given us back then, you know, but, uh, you know... Back then, we were talking about the paved area like they just had discovered the flaming cross of Goa. But now, maybe they weren't so convinced it was completely 100% man-made. Anyway, I'm going to stop my whining there. After some more sort of talking and digging, Spooner says he thinks the best thing to do here is to hand this whole thing over to the archaeologists to do a more thorough examination. And that pretty much brings an end to this project for this episode. Now, I have to say this. It is very hard for me at this point to say too much beyond that we, what we are hearing from the guys on the scene. This structure is, at least at this point, very difficult for me really to get an understanding of from the images we're seeing, really kind of visualize it. Um, it's just hard to get a full picture from these shaky shots of guys pointing at a lot of mud and a few rocks. It's almost impossible for me. So I'm, I'm going to hold off on coming up with a take here on this, on what this could be and what it could mean until I get to see some more. Hopefully as the area dries out um, and the archaeologists can really start getting clearing this away, we can get a better idea. That's what happened to the paved structure. The first couple episodes, the paved structure was shown. You just really couldn't visualize it. And then towards the end, you got a much better visualization of it as the rocks kind of dried up and popped out of the, the, the color of the, of the mud a little bit better. Later, Gary Drayton is metal detecting in an area that appears to be just adjacent to the structure and finds what everyone thinks is the end of a plumb bob. And predictably, we get a torrent of unfounded, hopeful speculation that we mentioned before. That made my poor wife roll her eyes. Uh, I mean, really, could a plumb bob be used for anything but digging a secret vault? I, I think so.
So let's finish off uh, with a discussion about the possible serpent mound feature discovered a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the conversation begins actually in the war room where Doug Kroll has gathered Rick Lagina as well as a few other members of the team and archaeologists Miriam Amaralt, Aaron Taylor, and Laird Niven to discuss the possible meaning of this newly discovered feature. Rick begins by saying that he's skeptical about what he's about to hear. And I have to say I was too. Before Doug even began his presentation, really, he said something that made me kind of made my skeptical uh, spidey sense kind of tingle a little bit here. He said, quote, I've looked at the history of serpent mounds. I've looked at the history of the symbolism of serpents to see how it might play into any of the theories that we've been presented with or have been presented to us, end quote. There's something about that goal that I just don't really like. That just doesn't really sit with me. Listen, serpents have been a prominent symbol in religions and cultures for centuries and centuries. I just don't know what purpose it serves to pick a few theories and go looking for how the serpent symbol fits into that theory, because it also relates to literally hundreds of other religions and cultures that you're not looking at here and you're not talking about. The process of investigation used here seems kind of backwards to me. Let me explain that better. He shows the team how the serpent symbol is used by the Knights Templar and the Freemasons, but no one else. Why just those two? I mean, I know why, but still, I mean, I can guarantee you that if you looked at the serpent symbols within the religion and culture of First Nations people in Canada, you're going to find many examples uh, of the use of that symbol everywhere, including building serpent mounds for crying out loud. Why on God's green earth would we show us examples of how this feature on Lot 15 relates in size and shape to what we know is a burial site created by the Mississauga tribe centuries ago? to only then start talking about Templars and Masons. What do they have to do with all this? Honestly, I mean, anyway, we may get an answer in a bit. Like I mentioned, one good thing Doug does show us is this graphic depiction of the feature itself and also where it sits exactly on the island. This is all great info, the kind of info I always ask for, right? And I'll post a screenshot um, of each one of these on the social media as well. He then compares its dimensions and characteristics to other serpent mounds, specifically in Canada. And at the risk of repeating myself, they pretty much match up. They match up pretty well, you know. And again, that's the avenue we should be thinking about, right? Did the team just discover something of incredible archaeological significance in here, you know, regarding the history of Oak Island and the First Nations people that were here? An ancient burial site on Oak Island, I mean, the potential for that seems pretty plausible, yet... We just can't help ourselves from trying to shoehorn the Templars into all this. It can be maddening sometimes. It really can. Rick makes a great observation when he lumps this in with other strange features found in the island, like the paved structure and all these other things. He says, quote, how did all these intensely laborious structures rise up without people knowing it? Well, Rick, I couldn't have asked it better myself. How did that happen? Or... Perhaps more likely the answer is that people did know it and we just aren't aware of that fact now and maybe that's what we should be looking into. Now, after all this criticism, we get to something really interesting and head-scratching here, which might make me rethink the possibility of this structure's origin. In the next scene from the war room, we see Craig Tester has joined the team via video conference. Now, if you recall, last week when just beginning to do an archaeological examination of the mound, literally just scratching the surface, Aaron Taylor found little bits of charcoal, which he said can be dated. Well, Craig has the result of the dating, and it is 1320 to 1440. And now 
we know why we spent the last scene talking about Templars and Freemasons, who always seem to be discussed in the show like they're the same thing, but I digress. Anyway, Miriam Amaral looks stunned, and honestly, I was too. I really was expecting this artifact to either be of sort of an ancient origin or to fit into the same timeline as the pine tar kiln, but clearly it does neither of those things. Aaron Taylor is also flabbergasted and says that if this date is correct, it, quote, changes the history of the entire region. And I like what Craig says here, too, which is, quote, obviously when we get such an outlier, it's worth taking the extra steps to ensure it's good data. Couldn't be, <laughs> couldn't be more right. Um, we need to take these extra steps. My immediate wonder is why can't this still be aboriginal? Why are we convinced this must be European and therefore a groundbreaking discovery in the history of the area? My guess is that conclusion, that it can't be Aboriginal, that it must be European, is due to the nail they briefly mentioned in passing. Did you get that? When Craig was asking if they had the artifact there in the war room for everybody to look at while he's giving the dates, Doug says the sample also contains a nail. And let's pause on that for a second. When did the nail show up? I went back and looked again at the scene where Taylor finds this piece of charcoal and try and try as I might, I see no nail and I see no, I hear no mention of a nail. Is this a different piece found off camera in a different location? This really threw me for a loop because I was totally unaware that any nail was found, not only within this mud, but also apparently as Doug said, within this piece of charcoal itself. It's a very strange thing to just throw at us in this sort of passing manner, especially, you know, when it's so important to understanding the origin of what we might be looking at here. Again, this could all be just editing, but it does give me pause. It makes me wonder why not tell us this back then, back when we first discovered it. So now, if the, and also they never showed it, right? So if this is an iron nail, then we're going down the road of European influence here for sure. If this was just charcoal, yeah, it could be a lot of things, right? It could be, like I said, an, an aboriginal in nature. It could also be the result of a forest fire or a campfire or something like that. But add the nail into all this and the possibilities become less broad, especially in the context of the dating. But you got to ask yourself, why are we not being shown this nail? And where was all this found exactly? Was it this scene we saw in episode eight or was it some other time? So let's do this. Let's wait and see this nail. Let's see what exactly we're looking at here before drawing any conclusions or really going any further down the road of criticizing it all. I have to tell you, my mind is going to some dark places here and I don't like it. I mean, boy, oh boy, it looks a lot like the dating. They got the dating information first and then set off, set Doug off to, on a quest to find some sort of Templar connection just to keep perpetrating this uh, Templar, you know, <laughs> storyline. Uh, and then kind of reversed how it was shown to us. But again, I don't want to jump to conclusions, folks. Not yet. All right, that is going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Shameless plug time. I have another podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions where my friend Chris Poe and I discuss politics, beer, UFOs, basically anything uh, one might find themselves discussing while sitting down at a pub for a pint or two. And has there been any any news recently? I can't imagine what we would, would even be discussing. <laughs> Just search Sit Downs and Sessions on Apple Podcasts and you can subscribe to us there. Uh, and please don't forget, subscribe to this show 
uh, anywhere you get your podcast. And if you are enjoying the show, um, you know, pass it on to your friends, but also do us a little favor, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Uh, it helps to get the word out on us and bring more listeners to the show. And also, thank you to everyone who has done that already. I really do appreciate it. If you have any questions or comments you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Little warning. Uh, keep in mind, if you send me an email or a message, I might just answer it here on a future podcast. So if you don't want your message read to the listening audience, just make a note of that for me, and I'll try to answer it to you uh, via email or however you sent it to me uh, You know, some sometime down the road. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island. Give us a like or a follow there. I'd be much appreciated. It's a great way to follow the podcast and a great way to interact with other listeners about the show. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.